good morning, everybody, and happy Mother's Day. You can't say happy Mother's Day back to me, can you? It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like when you check out and you never says, well, enjoy your food. And you're like, you too, never mind. <laughs> well, welcome to Kings Over. Glad you're here today. If I know my mom, she's either watching online right now, hi, mom, happy Mother's Day, or she'll be watching later to see what I said. So I, uh, when I was late elementary school, I can't remember how old I was, uh, late elementary school, possibly early middle school, I remember coming home from school one day, and my mom worked a full-time job, but she would try hard to be there when I got home. And so when I got home, she was there, or came home, I think she was there before me, because I remember I stuck my backpack in the closet in kind of a sneaky sort of way, and my mom was in the kitchen, whatever, hey, how was your date? Fine, right? Typical boy response. What did you learn today? Nothing. Great. Glad you were gl- gone all day. Didn't learn anything. And then she said, well, um, where's your backpack? Do you have any homework or anything you know you need to work on today or anything to show me? And I looked at her and said, nope. And she picked up that something wasn't normal. And she said, well, where's your backpack? And I said, it's in the closet, but you're not allowed to look. <laughs> hey, moms, what do you think was going through my mom's head at that moment? What in the world are you hiding from me? So my mom kind of pushes past me, and she walks over towards the hall closet door, and you know what's funny is I'm telling you a story, you're picturing your home in your mind, so I don't know what your home looked like, but she walked past, pushed past me, walked to the hall closet door, opened it up, there's my bag, and I walked up, and I hit my mom in the back. I have never laid a hand on my mom in my life, and never would again since that day. Because my mother turned around and she looked at me, and before she looked at me, I was already like, what did I just do? <laughs> and she looked at me, eyes with fire, big. I think it was more shock and awe that she was giving me, like then, than the shock and awe that I would receive later. And um, she looked at me and she said, what did you just do? And I remember thinking, I don't know. <laughs> what did I just do? And then she said the most dreadful words any child has ever heard. You wait until your dad comes home. Come on, did anybody else's mom do that? And you're like, no, mom, whatever you got, give it to me. Give me your worst. It'll just be between us. I promise I'll cry like it hurt, okay? There came a point where my sister and I would joke with my mom that we would cry so she would feel satisfied. And then, kids, this is not to give you ideas. <laughs> well, anyway, the point of the story was what was in the bag was actually something I made at school for my mother. And I didn't have the words. I was so excited to surprise her with it later. I didn't have the words to tell her. There wasn't a bad report card. There wasn't like a puppy or a dead animal. There wasn't any drugs or paraphernalia in there. There was nothing insidious, but I didn't have the words. And so when my father came home to talk to me, happy Mother's Day, by the way, Mom. I'll never forget this moment. When my father came home, I thought, I'm dead. This is it. I'm going to die right here. I'm never going to get the drive. This is the end of it right here. (laughs) My father was full of both grace and truth. He took into account all that was a part of the story, that I truly was repentant, that it was a terrible accident, I should never have done it, and he made crystal clear as we had our come to Jesus meeting, (laughs) that it would never happen again. Now, I honestly don't remember, I'm sure there was another discipline significantly less severe than I thought it should be because my father made a wise decision in understanding the situation. It almost became comical later. (laughs) 
However, what we're going to study today is we're going to jump into where we've been. We're picking right back up in Numbers 11. I encourage you to go ahead and go there. And uh, in Numbers 11, we're going to be looking at this miraculous story. Don't worry, I'll bring you up to speed. If you're like, I'm watching online or I have no idea what you've been talking about, I will bring you up to speed as best I can. But what we're going to be looking at today is the discipline of the Lord. And I think there's so much wisdom to gain from what I just talked about because discipline is a, is a little bit of a hard and funny thing. In fact, so hard is it to understand that I cannot get this message out in one week. And if I had four to six weeks in a row, I feel like I could still barely scratch the surface. But what I'm going to do is dedicate two Sundays to this topic. This Sunday and next Sunday. And then this fall in September, we're going to do a, a series. We're going to do a three-month study of the book of Ephesians. And the last one, we're going to study the family through the book of Ephesians. And there's going to be a part where we're going to talk to um, parents about children and children about parents. In addition to that, we are currently working on some sort of parenting seminar. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet, but I've been having conversations with experts, so to speak, in the field. Because I believe there is so much need for training today. And the original way that God created the family, that each generation would be mentored by the one before. But as the home has broken down, as people have gotten too busy with hobbies and other things, as mom and dads have separated or sometimes blended family, there's no guilt or condemnation coming from me in that. I'm just stating a fact. What's happened as a byproduct is we have a broken model coming down from parent to child. And so, so many today are struggling to put the pieces together, to learn what they were never taught, or to implement what was shown to them, but it wasn't the best model. And I just, as a pastor, feel a tremendous burden for some of you. I love you. Even some of you I know who grew up in tremendous homes are struggling with this, as you're like, wow, what I seem to be doing isn't working. Help is on the way. You just have to wait a few months. So, in the meantime, may this week and next week guide you a little bit and give you pieces of wisdom. I've been praying the Holy Spirit would plant some of these ideas deep in your heart as God disciplines you that you will have some wisdom to discipline your own children better. So with that, I want to jump in and start with this question. Before we really get into Numbers 11, I want to ask this question because it's part of the discipline process. Why did the Israelites even ever need to be in Egypt in the first place? Have you ever thought about that? God already told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many, and through you all nations will be blessed. And God did that, both physically, as everybody that blessed the Israelites were blessed. If you read the, the Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and everybody who cursed the Israelites ended up suffering consequences. And so that was true, but it was also true in the spiritual realm, because through Abraham, Jesus came along. So why did the Israelites ever really need to be in Egypt as slaves anyway? I mean, they were there as slaves for at least probably 80 to 100 years. It could have been more than that. Why was this part of this story? Well, a few things, and, and I wish I had time. There's probably 10 of these, but quickly, here's a few. So in Genesis, I think it's 15 or 16, I can't remember exactly, God told Abraham uh, the, the sins or the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its, its completion yet. In other words, the Amorites were one of the major people in the promised land. So whatever's going on over there, God has said it's not time yet. In addition to that, if you were to study history, you would see that the groups who lived in the promised land, uh, today we call the Middle East, it's all that area where Israel is fighting Jerusalem and the, and the Israelites are fighting with the, um, the Arab nations surrounding them, that area back in that time uh, had many, many people who were constantly at war. God was birthing a nation who would be his representation on earth. They would follow his laws, his decrees, and his ways. Now, if Israel had been in the promised land, had God taken Abraham there, and that had begun then, they would have constantly been dealing with wars and factions. There's a good chance Israel would have never had a chance to grow. But in Pharaoh, in Egypt, under Pharaoh's watch, it was a pretty good environment in terms of economy and those kinds of things. So God could bless and grow 
Israel, and it says that they did. They grew exponentially. I mean, they're constantly popping out babies. It's part of the early story in Exodus. And beyond that, we also know, or at least there's reason to believe, that this Pharaoh comes to faith in Jesus. The one at the end of Genesis, the one who meets Joseph, comes to faith, at least in the God of Joseph. And that's important because part of what God does throughout the story of the Exodus and at the end of Genesis is he takes the people of God and he uses them to display his glory to the nations. And that becomes relevant for where we need to go today. But perhaps, and this is not the last reason, but perhaps the most significant reason for our series, that God takes them into Egypt is because they need to go through some stuff in order to be ready for what they're going to face. But the stuff that they need to go to may not go through may not be the stuff that you're thinking of necessarily. There's a great quote from a book called Freedom Road. It's in the app. I have the full quote, but I'm just going to cut it in half for time's sake and pick up here. It says this, we tend to ignore the warning that sin is something God must deal with. That warning is never heard by many, many people, or if it is heard, it's resented and rejected. The reality of our helplessness is missed as the illusion of adequacy clouds our sight. After all, we think, we're competent to provide for our families. We're able to make our way in this world. We're certainly competent to judge right and wrong. I mean, we have consciences. And if we don't always do what we know is right, at least, at least, we can argue, we're morally a cut above others. So as long as life goes on in its comfortable routine, we remain trapped in the illusion of adequacy. And then suffering comes. And suddenly the illusions begin to fade. We get a glimpse of the reality. We realize that there's nothing we can do to break through the hostility and misunderstanding that destroy our relationships with God and others. We realize that we are ruled by constant fear. However, by God's grace, we may begin to groan under our bondage and cry out. And when we cry out to God, we rediscover hope. Why was Egypt in Israel's experience? Why so many little Egypts for you and for me? Perhaps so that God's people might never be deceived about their constant need for him and him alone. And see, herein lies the heart of discipline for God. We are tempted at every turn to rely on our own power, our own self, our own abilities. The problem is we don't have what it takes in ourselves. And so God allows or God causes, and sometimes it's either, sometimes it's both, things to come into our lives to drive us back to our knees to desperate reliance upon him. Might I just suggest to you today that if you're going through a difficult season, that it is actually the hand of a loving father in your life leading you back to himself. So let's jump into our story for today, Numbers chapter 11. In order for Numbers 11 to make sense, I need to tell you the story of Numbers 11 for those of you who haven't been here. So the Israelites have been wandering in the desert, the Sinai Desert, now into the desert of Paran, and they're on the brink. In fact, in the book of Numbers, they're two chapters away from the promised land, where they will get up to the promised land and not make it in. And the reason they don't make it in is because they have not learned the lessons of the desert. This painful journey did not create in them, forge in them, the trust and the reliance upon God that it was supposed to. Numbers chapter 11, in many ways, is God's maybe last-ditch effort 
to do something significant in Israel that drives them to trust. But we get to Numbers 13 and they don't. In Numbers 11, they are tired of eating manna. And you can understand why. I mean, if you don't know, you can at least read this. So in Exodus chapter 16, verse 35, we find this little verse. So the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they arrived at the land where they would settle. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan and it was coming out their ears. Okay, that's not exactly what it says. I added that. And the whole point here, if you've missed this series, is simply this. The Israelites ate manna. It's literally this miraculous thing that God gave them every day. They ate it breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, every meal for 40 years. I had pizza yesterday. I had pizza earlier this week. I love pizza. Anybody else with me? Amen? I even like cheap pizza. Totinos, I think, are a godsend. They are manna. I don't know what it is. There might be some sort of illicit drug inside it, but they are amazing. I could eat pizza, I'm convinced, I could eat pizza three meals a day, maybe for a week. At some point, my heart would say, really, guy? But beyond that, there'd come a point where I would say, I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired of this pizza. And that's what's going on with the Israelites. But they had to eat it every day. Now, as God fed them miraculously in the desert with this food, what happens when we get to Numbers 11 is they begin to complain again. Ah, we're so tired of this manna. You know, we were back in Egypt. Oh, we had leeks and onions and we had all these, oh, cucumbers, garlic. Oh, it was wonderful when we were in Egypt. And as they complain against the Lord, God shows up. Moses basically goes to God and starts to pray on behalf of the Israelites. But this time he's melting down. He is frustrated. I'm done. These are your people, God. You take care of them. I don't have meat to give them. And God says, don't worry. I'm going to give them meat. In fact, here's God's response to Moses. Numbers chapter 11, verse 18. God talking to Moses, and say to the people, purify yourselves, for tomorrow you will have meat to eat. You were whining, and the Lord heard you when you cried, oh, for some meat. We were better off in Egypt. And now the Lord will give you meat, and you will have to eat it. Sound like a parent? And it won't be for just a day or two, or for five or ten or twenty. You will eat it for a whole month until you gag and are sick of it. For you have rejected the Lord who is here among you, and you have whined to him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? What I'm about to say, I need to put a disclaimer on. This is not suggested by the Attorney General, nor is this suggested by me as a parent. I'm only telling you a story of multiple friends of mine when I was a child. In fact, I want to make crystal clear, everybody here, I do not recommend what I'm about to tell you. But I do have multiple friends when I was a child. There was something apparently in the parenting model where I grew up that just to give one specific story, although there were many like this, one of my friend's parents found out that he had smoked a cigarette with a friend of his. So his dad promptly went to the local gas station, bought a pack of cigarettes, came home, took his son outside, handed him a lit cigarette and said, smoke it. When my friend finished smoking the cigarette, he lit another one and said, now smoke this one. And when he finished that one, he went to another one and then to another one. My friend, when he was only a few cigarettes into the pack, began to throw up everywhere. His father looked at him and said, are you done? Smoke another one. By the time my friend finished the pack, he said, I never wanted to smoke a cigarette for the rest of my life. Lesson learned. And that's kind of what God is doing in numbers. Some of you are like, ooh, I can't believe you told that illustration. It happened, and it happened in numbers. My last pastor used to say, he's famous for saying this, oftentimes you get what you want 
but then what you want gets you. And if you take that little wisdom from my last pastor and you apply it in many different areas of your life, when was the last time that you were whining and complaining? You could say it was to God or not. He hears everything. And you got what you wanted. I have friends who bought extremely expensive homes, which was great until they took a pay cut. I have friends who did the same thing with cars. I know people who married somebody that they were craving. It was going to be the perfect person. Even though everybody around them said, this isn't wise. There's major red flags here. I know guys who consumed a private life of alcohol, pornography, drugs. They can handle it. They got what they wanted, but then what they wanted eventually took them. In fact, in the book, The Land Between, um, Jeff Mannion gives us a great illustration. He says this. Kate is weary of being alone. How many bridesmaids' dresses will she buy before trying on a wedding dress of her own? What slows her movement toward marriage is that she has been limiting her options. Since high school, she has only been willing to date men who demonstrate strong Christian character. This decision drastically limits the field of options. Now her longing becomes a demand. She gives God an ultimatum. Okay, God, here's the deal. I would prefer a man with a spiritual pulse. (laughs) And, by the way, you have three months to deliver. After that, I'm going shopping for a guy regardless of spiritual temperament or heart for things eternal. Three months come and go. In stubbornness and distrust, she takes matters into her own hands and steers a course toward headache and heartache. There's a strong likelihood that Kate will get the meal she demands, but when it arrives, it may come as a spoiled meal. So now what if we actually get the thing we demand, but find that it ruins us after all? I mean, what if that thing in your heart right now that you're chasing, that you're pursuing, what if God actually gives it to you and then gives it to you in all of its abundance and it destroys you? I don't know if you've ever read the book of Romans in the Bible. The opening chapter tells us all about this journey that the people gave up the creator God and pursued his creation instead, choosing to worship the creation instead of the creator. So God steps back and says, fine, you want it? Have it. Have all of it. Have all that you can fill. But what it led to was untold debauchery and pain. And see, God often does this in our lives. You want it? Go ahead. Keep eating until you gag on it and then see what it does for you. But then something else dramatic in this story, Numbers 11, happens beyond just God saying, fine, smoke these cigarettes till you get sick. Something dramatic happens. Take a look with me in Numbers chapter 11, verse 33. But while they were gorging themselves on the meat, while it was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord blazed against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Yikes. So that place was called Kiprath Hatava, which means graves of gluttony. Because there they buried the people who had craved meat from Egypt. Can we ask this question? We could just be honest for a minute. Is this a hard text? You come across stories like this and everything in you says, this doesn't sound like the God I read about in the New Testament. Where's the God of grace and love and mercy that we read about? Well, if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as the scriptures tell us, he never changes, then there's something about God that either we don't understand or there's something about the text that we don't understand. I mean, why is God being so harsh with Israel? I mean, they're tired of manna. You would be too, right? So has God finally lost his patience? 
And maybe like a father who gets really angry, really easy, he's finally said, that's it. I'm pulling out the belt. But plagues and death? That doesn't seem like a belt. I see, again, this is a two-part message. And some of you who grew up in truly abusive homes, this is a struggle for you. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask for you to come this week and next, okay? Because I'll be able to cover more next week than I have time to cover today. But I want to tell you this, God is not an abusive father like perhaps yours was. And if you'll give me time, I hope I can prove that to you. But there are three reasons that I believe that God is doing this. Three reasons, and I want to cover those with you. Number one, God loves Israel as his own children. God has chosen Israel, the Bible tells us, as his portion among the nations. And what that means is this, God is going to take Israel He's going to shape them and conform them. In fact, we learn later now in the New Testament as all of us are Israel, the heavenly Israel, is what Paul calls us, a spiritual Israel, that God is shaping us and conforming us into the likeness of his son. The goal is that Israel would be the nation that he cared for and loved. They would bring about justice like he desires. They would um, be blessed like God desires. They would share what they have with those who are in need like God desires. And because of their faithfulness to his laws and decrees and commands therefore they would not experience the curses and the punishment that the other nations would experience as he judges them and leads them through disciplinary action back to himself the problem is israel as we read their story didn't follow god they often succumbed to the lifestyle of those on the outside and so israel god is in them treating them as a child he has got to shape them and Form them so that they can actually display his glory to the nations. That's the end goal. And why is he doing this? Because he loves them. And see, this may sound like an egomaniac to you, like God is some narcissist. And you think to yourself, gosh, this God guy is really obsessed with being the center of everything. But see, the problem is God really is the center of everything. In whatever moment God chooses to stop giving breath, we die. He is the creator of the entire universe and the sustainer of the entire universe. Meaning, not only did he start the process, but he's the one keeping it going. And if, as the Bible says, there is none as beautiful or as wise or as powerful or as loving or as all-knowing as him, then to stop and give glory to anything or anyone else would be to cheat yourself, not to count him of the thing that you need the most. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5. Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord your God disciplines you for your what? Own good. How many of you had a parent who, when disciplining you, looked at you and said, this is harder for me than it is for you? Did anybody have that parent? And how many of you when you were a kid went, liar? <laughs> and then you became a what? A parent. And you looked at your kids and you said, I know that you're going to think I'm crazy. But this is harder for me than it is for you. Why? You know something, don't you, parents? You know 
that if your child doesn't learn to obey when they're three or four or five, the stakes get higher. They get bigger, not smaller as they get older. When I tell you don't take your drink to the couch and you do not listen and you spill your drink on the couch, I can clean the couch. If it's really bad, I can buy a new couch. There's some pain involved. It's not the end of the world. But now if the drink is not milk but alcohol and you choose not to listen and obey me and you go driving as a teenager after a party, the stakes are significantly higher, aren't they? See, every parent knows that I have got to do whatever I need to do to get your attention, to teach you to listen to me and trust me when you're young so that when you're old, that wisdom is implanted in your head and in your heart. And that's what God is doing with the Israelites. There's a guy, his name is Jerome. He's a famous church historian, theologian from around 300 to 400 A.D. He says this, the greatest Anger of all is when God is no longer angry with us when we sin. I think that's a fantastic quote because we, and today in America, we love to paint this picture of God as a God of mercy, of grace, of love. And he absolutely is. But he's a God of righteousness and holiness, and we cannot miss that. And because of that, the worst thing that God could do would be to leave us in our sin and not care. Because each sin is separating us from him, from his heart. And I was just reading this the other day and just some other things I was reading. But John tells us in 1 John, I believe it's in chapter 5, there's a sin that leads to death and there's sin that doesn't lead to death. When we find sin that doesn't lead to death, we can warn a person, correct a person, but God's probably going to take care of that. But when we see a sin that leads to death, we better go out of our way to call that person to repentance because they are in a very dangerous situation. The stakes are significantly higher I wish John would have spelled out exactly which sins lead to death and which ones don't, so I knew which ones I could dabble in. But he doesn't. Because the point is for me to put off all sin. Now, number two, number two. Number one, God loves you as his own children. But number two, this is not a minor infraction. This is not a no big deal. Just to uh, help you get this idea. Remember when we studied this, again, if you weren't here, it's okay if you don't. In, in Exodus 15, 16, 17, roughly somewhere between 14 months and two years prior, we're in that ballpark. In Exodus 15, 16, 17, the Israelites complained. They were thirsty. They hadn't had water for three days. Natural thing. God gives them water to drink. Then they were hungry, and they didn't have food to eat, so God gave them manna. Natural. They were hungry. God gave them food. Excuse me. Chapter 17, they were thirsty again. God brought water from the rock. Now, in each of those situations, there was a legitimate need. They cried out. God met it. But do you notice that God didn't discipline them in Exodus 15, 16, 17? They were whining. They were using some similar language. But God didn't come down with a heavy hand to do anything about it. And might I just suggest to you at least a couple things. Number one, it wasn't as serious in Exodus 15, 16, 17 as it is in Numbers 11. And the reason it's so serious, as I already referenced, in Numbers 13, two chapters later, they're on the brink of the promised land. This is perhaps God's last ditch effort to get their attention, to bring about radical heart change in them. Because this is it. The moment has arrived and they're still acting the same. But not only are they acting the same, there's something unique in their sin that is not just whining. Take a look with me. Let's go back and read some of what we already read. Numbers chapter 11, verse 20. Here's God's response to them. You will eat it for a whole month until you gag and are sick of it. I just kind of love that. For you have rejected the Lord. 
This isn't just, we're tired of manna. This is, we don't want you anymore. Our lives, our sin has progressed to the point where we are now fantasizing about a life that's different than the life we have. A God who's better than the God we have. Notice as they go on. And you have whined to him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Well, if you don't know this already, let me just tell you. See, in the plagues of Egypt, when God showed up and gave those 10 plagues, each of those plagues was a slap in the face to the false gods of Egypt. So there's a God of the Nile, there's a God of the frogs, there's a God of the flies, there's a Lord of the flies. Before a book was written, did you know that? Anyway, sometimes the ADD comes out. There are gods of all of these things. And in the plagues, God was shunning the false gods of Egypt. He was displaying his might and his power for Israel and for Egypt. But now the Israelites are whining and crying for those gods. They're not just saying, we don't want more manna. You would say that. They're now saying, we want those gods who gave us what we wanted. I know a couple who are in a really bad place. Marriage is struggling. One of the spouses has not fulfilled their marital role, has not um, been kind and loving and encouraging and supportive. After years of this, the other one has said, that's it. But instead of being radical and getting their spouse's attention, crying out to help with friends and family, they've reconnected with uh, an old lover, the last significant lover before the marriage. And now their marriage is on the brink of destruction. And this story is all too true in our culture, as social media has become the number two cause of divorce in America. And what's happened is a breakdown of marriages and families and our culture has made this generation, those who are 30 and under, say, you know what, maybe we just won't get married. Maybe we'll just play family. We'll live together. We'll have kids together. But we won't follow God's path of actually looking at you in the eye and saying, I do, and I will stay with you until your last breath, no matter what it causes me. That's what God does with us. And did you know marriage is actually a picture of our relationship with God? That's Revelation. The whole last book says the last days when Jesus comes back, the marriage banquet will begin and Jesus is the groom and we are his bride. See, marriage on earth is to practice heaven. And so we have an entire generation of people who are saying, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do it my way. And I know that some of you, and that's not intended to shame you, it's intended to point out that you are basically saying to God, I don't care what you want. I don't care if you have a provision for me that's different than the provision I envisioned, like manna. I'm going to do this my way because I know better than you. And they rejected the Lord. This is not a small infraction. This is significant. In fact, so much so that Paul actually talks about this in the New Testament. Here's here's his words, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says this, writing to the church in Corinth, an extremely immoral city, one of the most immoral of all the ancient world. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. 
These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. Now notice, this is not, again, Exodus 15, 16, 17. God is gracious and patient. This journey of freedom is new to you. So though they whined and complained early in their journey, no, we're a year, two years down the road. And I don't mean to imply that if you're a two or one or two years down the road in your faith, that therefore you should watch out. The heavy hand of the Lord is coming. What I'm saying is that if God loves you, then he can't allow you to walk in sin. He would not be a good father. If he didn't care. Because he does care. Don't be surprised if you don't handle it if he does. Now you may be saying, well, how do I know, pastor? How do I know if what I'm going through right now is the disciplinary hand of the Lord? And I will tell you, I cannot tell you emphatically, but next week I will give you some wisdom. Next week I'll give you some wisdom. And so that's why you need to come back or listen online or do something because you're only getting half of the message. I mean, if everybody just wanted to stick around for three hours, I could probably get it done. But I'll tell you this. The word discipline, have you ever noticed that inside that word is the root word disciple? It's because the point of discipline throughout the scriptures, especially in the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the purpose of discipline is to get you back on the right course. It is primarily to teach you to conform you to the likeness of Christ and your heavenly father loves you enough to do that to you Um, when I was in college some of these as the older older I get some of the past stories become a little fuzzy but um, I remember I was at college, and I remember, I think it was Thanksgiving, I went home to visit my family, and I had a dental cleaning. My mom had scheduled, like any good mother. And um, I went to the dentist, and he did the cleaning. He said, hey, you got this little spot here. It's not a big deal right now, but when you come home at Christmas or Easter, we need to deal with this. Well, I had had traumatic experiences as a child related to my teeth. I had really pitted teeth, and so I was always getting cavities. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the candy I was eating. But I'm, you know, Halloween was never a kid's friend when I was growing up. Um, but I remember like they would have to go in and I have to get all these shots and cavities and they'd have to build up my teeth because they were just really bad teeth. And, um, so anyway, I put it off. Came Christmas time, I didn't deal with it. So Easter came around. My mom, I remember my mom saying, hey, didn't you have, yeah, 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 but I'll get to it later. I don't have time. I'm too busy besides it's Easter. My mom's like, okay, you're an adult now. It's on you. So I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. And then what happened was I took a part-time ministry in Kentucky and I stopped coming home. Well, I eventually got married and went out to Colorado and uh, I saw a dead teeth. like, hey, you got a pretty significant cavity in here. He's like, we need to fill that. Ugh, fine. So I finally get it filled. It was miserable. It was no fun. But I noticed a couple years later, like, man, I'm still having a lot of pain and discomfort with this tooth. And I go back in. He said, yeah, I was afraid of that. It was so deep and so profound that um, I think you're in, you're in for a crown now. Now we're talking thousands of dollars. Probably wasn't quite that much, but it was like 800 bucks. I can't remember. Tons of pain and annoyance, suffering abounded. Then I moved here from, from Colorado, and I went and saw the dentist, and I was having problems with this, with this crown. It wouldn't stay on. It wouldn't stay on. It just kept falling off, and uh, he said, I think we're in for a root canal. So then it led to a root canal. And so then, literally two weeks ago, Thursday, I, um, <laughs> I finally had to have this tooth, insert a few words there, extracted. And last Sunday was brought to you by Pfizer, or whoever makes Vicodin. I don't know. <laughs> I 
Some of you are like, that's the best sermon you ever preached. <laughs> but I got to tell you, if I got something going on in there. Even yesterday, I was talking to my dentist on the phone. He was out of town and graciously took my phone call. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. It won't stop. I've been using natural oils. I've tried. To, I'm literally trying not to take any pain meds. It's led to sleepless nights. It is brutal, brutal. Yeah, it's probably a dry socket. It still hurts like you wouldn't believe. And all because, all because I wouldn't go get a few shots 18 or 19 years ago. Do you see the point? See, what happens with most of us, the primary way, and I'll dig into this very thing next week, the primary way that God disciplines us, do you know what it is? It's through teaching. It's through the revelation of his word that he convicts us, he stirs in us, and he moves us. It's that uh, bringing to your heart and your mind, you know, there's a different way, there's a better way for you to live. That's the primary way that God disciplines us today. And in case you're struggling to believe that, I'm going to show you to you in Scripture. Because number three, the reason this happened, the reason this happened to Israel is an example for us to repent and to grow. Here it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We already started there. Let's go back there. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Look at this. These things happened as a what? Warning to us. How many of you are younger brothers and sisters? How many of you? Let me see your hands. Okay. How many of you learned by watching your sibling get disciplined what not to do? That's exactly what Paul is arguing for. I have one sister. She's older than me. And by God's grace, she was a real big screw up. So (laughs) she probably won't be listening to my sermon. I'm just kidding. But it was so easy to sit and, 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 and watch her be disciplined and think, I'm never doing that. That's exactly what Paul is arguing for here. Paul is arguing that God's extreme discipline of the Israelites then is for your benefit today. Don't let their pain go wasted. I remember, I remember being a student pastor, and I've told this story so many times, I'll never stop telling it. I remember two of my students, one male, one female, were, were out living the party scene, but they were leaders in my ministry in Colorado, and I called them in the office, and I remember saying to them, guys, you cannot continue to be leaders in the ministry and, and live the secret lifestyle you're living, because it's not a secret. Everybody at the party knows, and they know about your influence here, and you're ruining the glory of God. And so either you're going to repent and remain in leadership, or I have to remove you from leadership. It's your choice. And we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Basically, they argued, like, why is this such a big deal? Everybody's doing it. And I was able to look at that one and say, do you realize how alcohol has destroyed your family? Look at your brothers. Look at your parents' marriages previously. Look at your dad and your mom today. Is this really the, the steps you want to follow in? I mean, you have a chance to look at their example and change, but you're not. And I remember looking at me and saying, well, maybe I'm just one of those people that has to learn the hard way. I'll tell you, it's been a brutal road for him. And the sad thing is, as far as I know today, as I'm following him on Facebook, nothing's changed. And his marriage just ended. And it's a brutal lifestyle. See, we have an option. We can actually look at the Israelites and say, you know what? I'm going to learn from them. Let's look at the rest of what Paul says. These things happen as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. We must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. 
Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as an example for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. See, we have a choice. Here's naturally how this conversation goes in our heads. God is a God of grace and love and mercy. And since I can never out-sin grace and love and mercy, Paul tells us that in Romans 6, therefore, God will be patient with me. And the truth is, God will be patient with you. But he's a loving father. God is also perfectly holy and righteous. And because he is perfectly holy and righteous and loving, it would be evil for him to allow you to live a lifestyle that is leading you away from him. When he is the source of love and life for you, he is literally everything you need. And so if he had just lets you keep going down this path away from him, what kind of loving father would he be? And so God brings discipline into our lives to get our attention and call us home. That's why Paul finishes 1 Corinthians 10, and he says in verse 12, If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So my dear friends, Flee from worship of idols. You are reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I am saying is true. I love that Paul puts it back on them. I've made my argument. Now make a choice. I just want to say the reason Paul references worship of idols, it's so easy in our culture to go, I don't have any idols in my home. But do you have any in your heart? Is money an idol? Do you work all day long to get more, but you keep finding more debt? You never have enough money because you keep buying more stuff? Money might be an idol. What about success? Is it an idol? Do you ever find you don't have enough energy or margin in your heart and your mind and in your, in your body to give time to your spouse or your kids because you're pursuing everything else because you need to be successful or seen as successful? Sleep can be an idol. Some of us who just withdraw and try to get away from the world and we just sleep way more hours than we actually need. Food could be an idol. Every time I'm stressed and I don't know how to handle the situation, I go off and hide and start shoving food in my face. And I know it's not good for me or my body, but I don't know what else to do. Sex, alcohol, drugs. See, idols come in many forms, but an idol is anything we turn to to get what we think that we need, that thing that God longs to give to us. That's why he's saying, God is faithful. You can trust him. He will never, ever, ever fail you. Even if you're in a desert and it's been three days since you've had a drink, trust me, he's watching and he will show up. He will always give you a way out so that you could stand up under it because he's a perfect father possibly not like yours. Not exactly the encouraging Mother's Day message you might have been hoping for, but perhaps one that is desperately needed today. Communion service, please don't get up yet. Let me give these directions and then you may go. Listen, we're about to take communion and while we're taking communion, um, I just want you to listen to the voice of God. 
I want you to listen. And if he says something like, I need you to stop this. I want you to quit that. I want you to change this. Confess that. Don't stick this in a bag in the closet. Bring this out into the light. I want you to listen to that voice. Now, I need to give you a quick teaching on this. It's very likely some of you are hearing two different voices in your life. I know, you're hearing voices. But listen, there's two different voices. One voice, the voice of God, it'll sound like this. This isn't who I made you to be. I will give you victory. Trust me, you can do this. I'm with you to the very end of the age. While in this life you will have trouble, take heart, I overcame the world. See, the voice of God, the voice of your heavenly father may convict you of something in your life, but when he convicts you, it'll be so specific. You'll know exactly what it is. If you walk away from a prayer time with God feeling overwhelmed by guilt and shame and confusion, God is not a God of confusion. He never has been. That doesn't mean God will always tell you what he's going to do next, but he'll tell you what you need to do next. A lot of times it's us putting up walls and fighting. But if you're walking away from this prayer time you're about to engage in and you're going, oh no, I don't, I'm just a bad person. I probably messed up. Ah, God's going to discipline me. That's not the voice of God. That's the voice of your enemy who wants to keep you trapped in chains. He wants you to believe that you're not lovable, not good enough, not worthy, too big of a mess up. And that's not God's voice. So to learn to tune in to the voice of your heavenly father who's looking at you and saying, you are my child. I discipline you because I love you. I will lead you. Now, let's deal with this thing. See, there's a huge difference between God saying, why did you do that? That's not who you are. And the voice that says, why did you do that? Pfft, that's not who you are. Hear the difference? Your heavenly father leads you. Your enemy condemns you. So I'm going to ask communion service to go ahead and go. And I'm going to start a prayer, and I'm going to hand it to you. And I'm just going to ask you to engage your heavenly father at this time and ask him to speak to you in a profound way. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for being a good and perfect father. God, I pray right now, uh, whatever it is you need to say to our lives, some of us, God, you're just going to encourage. You're going to look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And um, that doesn't mean we don't have stuff to work on, but it just means that you are good and faithful and we've been walking with you and listening to you. Others of us in this room, there's some stuff that needs to be dealt with. And God, I pray you would speak in such a clear way. I pray, Lord, that you would keep the enemy's voice out, that he would not speak into our lives, that he would not be able to confuse this moment. May your spirit just whisper those words that we need to hear. Father, I just hand this back to you right now because this is your church and your people and your moment. Do the thing that you do. So as we come into your presence, speak, Lord, in Jesus' name.